everybody has a brand. We all do, whether we're aware of it, whether we're clear on it, whether we're in control of it. That's another story. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Alison Brown. Alison, hello. How are you today? Well, I'm a little annoyed with myself. How so? So as we've spoken about previously, I had a terrible time finding the Oreo cookies, the Team USA Oreo cookies. Mm -hmm. I had a friend who was in a particular store with a bullseye and texted me. Oh, they have the cookies. Do you want me to buy them for me? And I don't know what kind of sleep-deprived haze. I said no. What? what? I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, there was a, oh, I don't want to inconvenience her getting the cookies, and then she's got to get them to me, and, you know, we don't want to have close contact and wearing the mask. So I think I just missed out my, on my last chance to get the three-striped Oreo cookies. Oh, and I could really go for them right now because a snack would be nice. A snack would be nice. <laughs> so if anyone finds the cookies, just buy them for me. Don't ask. Just put them away. I will come collect them when the pandemic is over. Right, because they'll still be good. They'll still be <laughs> fine. I don't think blue-red creme ever goes bad. Just keep them you know, so they won't get crushed. And we'll move on just because I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. I can't tell you. I don't know. It was it was an Olympic size mistake. Let oh. me just put it that way. <laughs> well, they've got their branding down and you know what we're talking about today. We are talking about building a good brand. That's right. Our guest today is Vicki Saunders, president of the Brand Builders, a brand and sponsorship education, training and resource for individuals and organizations. She and her company work with many national Olympic committees, sports governing bodies and sports institutes to help athletes learn how to build their personal brands. So we talked with her about how that works. Take a listen. Vicki, thank you so much for joining us. Talk to us a little bit about how you got into athlete branding as a line of work. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for having me on the show, by the way. Um, it's so nice to be able to connect, especially at this time in the world. I think, you know, the work that, that I do, so much of it is about people. And we're also disconnected geographically at the moment. I have always been really passionate about, I guess, the idea that, that everybody is amazing and everybody has something valuable and unique to offer the world or the community around them. So I think that that belief is maybe the foundation of now what I do as a business. It's been an evolution. I used to work in the corporate sector doing bid writing, so writing documents and working with large teams of experts, pulling together information to create a compelling, convincing, accurate professional document that would ultimately win projects and work for my for my clients and my company. I was pretty good at it. I did very well at school, so I was a good writer and I was able to, you know, be, be quite creative in my thinking. 
but ultimately it was very unfulfilling. And around 10 years ago, I was quite involved in sport and my partner at the time was an athlete and he was doing these fantastic projects, running the length of countries and around countries and across countries and uh, you know, all sorts of amazing adventures and he needed sponsorship. And I said, yeah, listen, I think I've got the skills to help you put together a, a compelling you know, proposal document. That's my skill set. But I think it needs to be from you. I think you as the athlete, your uniqueness, the fact that you're not famous, the fact that you've got an interesting backstory, I think that's going to be your value to these businesses that you approach. So it, you know, it kind of evolved fairly organically, things I cared about, things I was good about, the relationship I was in. And from there, it kind of skyrocketed. I ended up writing a book about athlete sponsorship I quit my job in the corporate sector and I started teaching athletes about how to get sponsorship. And over the last seven or eight years, that has evolved again. You know, I brought other people into the business to work with me, people who knew about athletes and sponsorship and the business world. And we all decided that, you know what, sponsorship's fantastic. It's, it's such a great outcome for any athlete to be able to achieve getting sponsored and to be supported in that way. But it's bigger than that. I think we should be teaching athletes how to navigate the pathway. And it may be that sponsorship something they pursue, but it may be their career. It may be self-fulfillment. It may be creating better relationships during their time in sport and beyond. So we identified that the concept of athlete brand needed to be the big umbrella topic that we educated on. And from that, it's just been the most amazing experience because now I get to bring everything that I care about into my work and you know we're not life coaches we're not motivators we we have a, a framework that allows athletes and our business clients but mostly athletes to unpack who they are see themselves clearly in all of the different aspects that make them unique and then apply those and action those in their lives and in all aspects not just in their sport so it means that their journey in sport and beyond sport is true to who they are and they're able to grow and develop as people through that. So when you say creating their brand, what does that actually mean in concrete terms? Yeah. So we, we like to use the term building their brand because they already have one. Everybody has a brand. We all do. Whether we're aware of it, whether we're clear on it, whether we're in control of it, that's another story. But we all have a brand. We have elements that make up who we are. So for an athlete, for them to be able to build their brand, they need to start with understanding and identifying the elements that make them who they are, their values, their passions, their interests, in and out of sport, their message, their code of conduct and their behavior, their visual style, all of the things that if you in the same way that if you look at a business brand, what, what makes up that person or that entity? So once they're clear on that, they can start looking at how that gets communicated. So building their brand through communicating it, whether that's through their own internal dialogue, through the conversations they have, through the actions that they take in their life to the kind of organizations and businesses that they represent, such as sponsors or sports teams that they're part of. And obviously leveraging their brand 
is that sort of next step of building it. They're clear on who they are. They're able to communicate it. And now what can they do to put that brand into action in a way that's going to serve them, that's going to give them sustainability and meaning and satisfaction in their life in and out of sport, whether that's becoming an entrepreneur, you know, growing their profile so that maybe they can become better known as an athlete, maybe becoming a public speaker. There's so many ways that they can then put that brand into action. And it can, you know, I think there's an expectation that athletes all want to be famous or that a successful athlete is a famous athlete who's on TV and has millions of followers. But I think redefining what success looks like is really important for all athletes because most of them, most of them are not going to be famous. Most of them are not going to have millions of followers or millions of dollars. So what about that other 99% of athletes who are passionate and interesting and inspirational and have amazing stories and so much to offer the world? By them building their brand, they get to put that out there into the world. They get to be influential. They get to help and inspire other people and also help themselves in the process. They get to develop skills and relationships and network, connect with opportunities that are going to mean that they're financially supported or emotionally supported or their professional skills are developed along the, you know, alongside with their, their sport so that they can transition into a career after sport. It's very holistic. Like it can be very commercially focused, building their brand, or it can be very personal and everything in between. What are some examples of athletes who have good brands, either financially successfully or holistically personal? Well, I think I'll have to say there's a, a lady called Chantelle Thompson. She's an Indigenous woman, an Australian Indigenous woman. She's a mother of three kids. She got into her sport of Brazilian jiu-jitsu after giving birth to her twins, her, her youngest kids. She got postpartum depression and was encouraged to try doing a sport to get through that, to deal with the, the depression. She ended up becoming a world champion in that sport. She uh, is an incredible athlete, but she's also an incredible speaker and educator. She's trained in educating trauma recovery. So trauma is a huge part of the Indigenous culture here in Australia in that you know, we've, we've got a very dark past and the way that they've been treated over the years has caused generational trauma. And it's something that she's been able to become an expert in teaching. So she goes into schools and prisons, detention centres, but she also goes into the corporate world. She's inspirational. She's so well-spoken. She's so, she's got an amazing story and an amazing presence that she's able to not only go in and work with people from her Indigenous community, but in the corporate world, and she doesn't have to talk about reconciliation or political or social issues. Her presence there as an educator, as a speaker, as an inspiration is reconciliation in action. So her being true to who she is has allowed her to pursue a sport, become a world champion, start a business for herself, become independent financially, and also carry an important message that's part of you know, what she really, really cares about. I think it's kind of a simple, it's probably one of the most simple yet sophisticated ways that I've seen somebody put their brand elements into action. You know, her values, her passions, her message, 
and done in such a way that she's just being who she is. And I think that's the key for a successful brand is that the athlete is, is able to be and confident to be who they are in all of who they are, all of the aspects of, of themselves, good and good and bad or however, however they decide to judge them. So we obviously focus on the Olympics and Olympic athletes, and a lot of those are kind of the lesser known athletes in sport and only come up every four years. And I could see those athletes being very resistant to this idea of needing a brand mm. and needing to put themselves out there in that way. And how do you deal with that kind of situation? Yeah. So we, the brand builders, we predominantly work with Olympic athletes. Most of our clients are NSOs or Olympic committees, or as we say in, uh, I guess, this side of the world, it's institutes of sport. So that space of working with amateur elite athletes, that's absolutely where you want to be exploring your brand from that very granular personal level right through to that promotional side of it. You're able to, I guess, navigate things like career development and sponsorship in a different way. It's not going to be handed to you on a platter like it might be for some athletes who are doing a sport that's on TV every week, who have huge profiles, who are always in the media. That is a different game because they're going to have sponsors coming to them and they're going to have to knock lots of them back. They're going to need help navigating that. They should still know their brand. Their brand is still really important to help them you know, navigate which opportunities are right or wrong for them. But for Olympic athletes, you guys have so much to offer that goes beyond your sport, your results in your sport or whether or not your sport's on TV or how you're ranked. It plays a very small part in your ability to go out and build your brand in a way that's going to help you earn money or grow your profile or develop your skills or your network, who you are as a person, your, your story, your character, your behaviors, your personality, that's the stuff that's going to allow you to connect with opportunities. Some businesses say sponsor, so they will only sponsor an athlete who's got great results, but that's less and less these days. Businesses want to connect with uh, their audience. They want to, if they're going to sponsor an athlete, they want that athlete to be able to be relatable to their audience, maybe inspirational as well, but there's that authenticity that they seek these days. Of course, you're still going to see people on Instagram doing a post that they get paid for, endorsing products that they do or don't actually use themselves or don't actually believe in. But more and more so businesses need to be able to show their customers that they're for real, that the athletes that they sponsor or are endorsed by can be trusted. They're not just out there selling every single product under the sun. They're promoting and representing brands and products and services that they care about, that they use for themselves. And it's, it's a different dynamic to what it used to be. So for those, those Olympic athletes who think that they're not good enough or fast enough or famous enough or don't have enough followers, think about using the things that you do have rather than feeling like you don't have enough or you know those things are going to hold you back. Think about if you're someone who's maybe vegan or you're passionate about animal rights, how can you use that to guide your career, 
or sponsorship or growing your profile or carrying a message. Focus on what you do have and who you are and it's going to reveal the things that are right for you, the opportunities that are right for you. If you spend too much time thinking about what you don't qualify for, you're wasting time and energy um, keeping yourself from the things that are right for you. When should an athlete start thinking about their personal brand? And I'm, I'm really curious about somebody starting out. You know, what happens if you change, change interests over time? And how do you how do you evolve your brand to include something that you're newly passionate about or you need to go back and if you if you change your way of thinking, going back and adjusting that branding message? It's a great questions in there. I think the first the first bit is when should an athlete start building their brand? And I think it can be quite incremental. I think the younger athletes, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-old athletes should definitely gain an awareness of what brand is. What does an athlete brand look like? What are the elements? And start to observe and note what other athletes might be doing, things that look great, things that maybe are a little questionable, and start to become familiar with the concept. Start to see what feels right for you and maybe just start to dip your toe in the water a little bit. Older athletes, I think, you know, from, from 18 years on, and there's, there's no set age, but I think, you know, probably under 18, they've got a whole lot of other things going on. Plus they're still figuring out who they are over 18. You know, you may want to start looking at what are the elements of my brand and knowing that they're going to change as you grow up. Fundamentally, you're probably going to still stay the same person with the same core beliefs and principles. They may change, but you can make a start on identifying what they are and communicating them. So saying, okay, I'm going to start putting my values into my social media. I've identified that my values are honesty and positivity and community. How can I start to weave those into my social media posts or into my conversations with people? And just start to test the waters and see how it feels to communicate your brand. As you progress along, you may find that you need to apply for a job or pursue a particular career or you want to be, you know, create a startup and be an entrepreneur or you maybe want to apply for a scholarship. So you might find those opportunities to then put your brand into action again, to tell your story, to describe who you are and demonstrate how you like to behave, your code of conduct and so forth. You'll be given those opportunities to put your brand into action. And things will change. Of course, we always grow and develop, but what will have happened by that point is you've gone through that process of identifying the elements. You're aware that there are elements. Your brand isn't just this mushy hodgepodge of things. It's clear. It's your values. It's your interests. It's your passions. It's the words you like to use and your visual style. And we've got a beautiful diagram on those elements, which is really helpful for athletes. It's in the book as well, where once you've learned that, then in the future, that just becomes part of your way of thinking. But I guess initially in those initial uh, years, you want to go through a set process, you know, a bit of a, a framework before it just becomes part of your natural way of thinking. And so when things do change, perhaps you pick up a new hobby or you decide that you actually changed your mind about something, you know, you're your message 
to the world may have been, hey, everybody should get active and do sport. And now it might be something a bit different, such as, uh, you know, sport's really important for building communities. So you can start to introduce that different message. Unless it's something completely conflicting with your previous brand elements, you should just be able to transition through and just grow and evolve. And people will naturally, they'll see that. They'll see that you're growing and evolving. If it's a huge conflict, a huge shift, you may want to address that. You may want to explain why something has shifted for you. That could be a really important piece of narrative as well. I've had this experience and it's made me see things differently. So you don't need to be doing therapy from the stage. If you're a public speaker, you don't want to be up there necessarily dealing with uh, these transitions and changes in your brand elements. It's probably something that you do want to do behind the scenes and then share the outcomes of it. But certainly, you know, there is an element of being vulnerable and real that is kind of the glue in your brand. You don't have to be perfect. You don't always have to get it right. But if you're staying true to yourself and you're able to share that, that will also help people resonate with you and, and trust you and want to be you know, involved with you, whether that's that you're speaking to an audience or you're on social media or even just the people that you're on a, on a team with. You know, your brand is the thing that allows people to get you and understand you and connect with you. So it's okay if it's not perfect and it, yeah, it, will, it will evolve over time naturally. So there's a little piece of this that makes an alarm bell go off in my head and I'm thinking, what is the difference between say brand and image? Because mm. there is so much pressure, especially when you're talking about very young athletes to present themselves a certain way on social media. Mm. And we talk a lot about the mental health of athletes, especially coming out of sport and very young athletes who don't have an identity outside of their sport. So talk a little bit about that sort of brand versus image question. So I think if I've understood correctly, I think they can be one and the same in that your image, what you do put out to the world is based on elements of your brand. So I there's a beautiful diagram actually um, that we use quite a lot when we when we teach on this topic. So I'll try to describe it. Your brand begins inside, in your heart and in your mind. It's your internal awareness. It's it's how you think, it's how you process information, it's the dialogue you have with yourself. Once you've identified your brand elements, your values, your beliefs, your code of conduct the kind of words you like to use, how you want to be seen, that can begin, you can begin to apply that internally. You know, if you're someone who likes to be kind to others, be kind to yourself. If you're someone who likes to be positive, then that allows you to maybe change the narrative internally a little bit so you're a little bit more, the negative speak goes to more positive speak. Then that internal brand becomes something that's interpersonal. So you start to communicate with people that you have conversations with, family and friends and teammates. And again, you're putting those brand elements into action. From there, it becomes public. You might do media interviews or you might participate in public events where there's an audience. Walking down the street, you know, your brand gets communicated. If you're throwing trash on the ground or swearing, that's that's you're communicating your brand and not in a great way. So you need to sort of be aware of that your brand is being communicated constantly. And then there's that more promotional aspect, which I guess is image. You know, that's the one where you're 
wanting to put something out for a specific purpose. You want to show people the best of yourself. You maybe want to do that for a purpose such as um, becoming famous or representing a, a charity or a sponsor. And I think the more that you get the internal stuff right, the more that you, even as a young athlete, become clear on how you want to be, how you want to behave, how you want to treat people. You know, that, that really fundamental core values stuff, that will help guide the external. Does that answer your question or have I missed something there? I'm kind of feeling I might have missed something. What I'm concerned about is, is branding putting an additional pressure on uh, especially very <laughs> young athletes. So, yeah, I get nervous also when there's an expectation on younger athletes to have a brand or an image. And that's why, while it's important that they are able to conduct themselves in a way that may, that doesn't, you know, tarnish their brand, because like I said, everybody has a brand. It's just the impression that we make and the impact that we create. That's what a brand is. But to put an expectation on younger athletes to behave a certain way, to promote a certain message, I think is, is potentially adding an unnecessary stress in their life, especially if it's not based on who they truly are, because then it's adding extra effort. It's them trying to be something or be somebody that they're not necessarily, rather than just being themselves. So it's not sustainable. And I think that's why I, I really believe that you've got to focus on the internal stuff. You've got to get that right, get that comfortable before you start looking at the outside. And, and really, you know, I think a younger athlete, you know, that they should be supported by adults anyway. So it shouldn't be on them. That's just my opinion. I think I know when I was 16, I'd hate to think that I was having to create and, and live up to an image that someone else had put on me. But there's nothing wrong. I think there's nothing wrong with, with teaching younger athletes about brand and about the elements of it, but allowing them to navigate that in a way that's right for them and not putting an expectation or a measure on their ability to communicate it. So how do you help different Olympic committees and sports institutes? We teach them. We teach. We are all about education. So very briefly, you know, years ago when I started uh, my, my business teaching athlete sponsorship, as it was then, I had a lot of people approach me and, and offer to give me a commission, a cut of whatever they got if I helped them get sponsorship. And I always said no. I said, the thing is, if I don't teach you how to do it, I'm not really doing my job. And there was always that risk that, okay, if they got sponsored, maybe they'd get sponsored by Power Bar. And I don't need that many Power Bars, to be honest. Um, but honestly, I do believe that anyone who's empowered with knowledge and a process and an understanding are going to do a lot better if they're, you know, they're able to navigate that for themselves. They shouldn't need to have their hands held all the time. And in fact, they're going to be able to apply that better than, than I could or one of my staff could by teaching organizations. So we work with staff as well as with athletes. They are then able to apply that. They're able to take that with them, not only into the immediate activity that they're doing, which might be to become a speaker or to get sponsored or to pursue a career, but they can take that with them into life. I really believe that the more people who know about this stuff, the more people that know about athlete brand and what it means and what the elements are and how to put it into action, we can change the landscape around the world for athletes. And that's really 
the big picture for me and for my company, we want to change that landscape. We want to improve it. And if it's just us <laughs> doing it, we're not going to have that impact. So we've got to share the knowledge that everything that we do is education-based with lots of resources and online courses and webinars and everything that we can offer to make ourselves accessible and available. And sharing that knowledge is it's such a joy, to be honest, because when I see an athlete go out and put it into action because they've done one of our workshops, or they've been mentored by one of my team, the fulfillment is so much greater than if we'd done it for them. I know that there's agencies out there who will take an athlete and make their brand and do their social media for them and do everything for them, which is fine and there's nothing wrong with that. But the flip side is most athletes can't afford that and they're not really gaining anything. If they're getting everything done for them, at the end of that time as an athlete, what skills have they got? What networks and experience and confidence have they got or even self-awareness? So it's a, I think it's a missed opportunity when an athletes always look to just outsource everything. So that's it. That's really how we work. It's about empowerment, education and empowerment. Yeah, it's a, it almost sounds like two different styles of parenting. You know, do you do it for them or do you make them do it for themselves a little bit with guidance? Yeah, I think so. I don't have kids. I have two chihuahuas. So they get everything done for them. And then sometimes I realize that, no, I actually should have let them do that themselves, like walk down the stairs because they're so cute. You just want to carry them. But actually, that's not helpful for them. So that's my <laughs> my parenting experience is limited to two, three kilogram dogs. But yeah, no, that's it's absolutely true. Like you, you, you give people so much more confidence and clarity when they understand the behind the scenes, they're not just spoon fed. They're not just having their hands held the whole way a little bit. There's nothing wrong with holding their hand and guiding them and supporting them and encouraging them. I, I think we're more like Mary Poppins. Yes. We, we help them figure things out in a way that's right for them. And then when we're not needed anymore, we fly off with the umbrella. Yep. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a perfect branding opportunity right there for your business. You have umbrellas. Yeah, that's a and great idea. Bag. And carpet bags. <laughs> and songs. <laughs> and musical. This is great. This is, can we just see, we can do like a rebranding of the brand of this. <laughs> you know, you, you mentioned some athletes who outsource it. Do athletes think that, oh my gosh, I'm spending all this time training and maybe schoolwork or trying to fit in a job or two or three. How much time do I have to give to my personal brand in order to make it work for me? Yeah, that's a really good question. And like I said, I'm not against the idea of athletes outsourcing anything. I actually think it's a really smart way of doing things as long as they are already clear on their brand. So that when they do that, they're still in control. They're not just allowing somebody else to represent them without you know, actually representing them accurately. So whether that's for social media or managing their, even managing their travel or, you know, organizing sponsorship and things like that for them. If the athlete understands their own brand and understands how it can be put into action, how it can be used to guide decisions, they're able to share that with their agent or their manager or their social media person. So much like a business, you know, they really, as an athlete, you're, you're a business. You've got the marketing, you know, you, you're doing your own marketing and sales and financial activities and 
travel and PR and all sorts of stuff. So as long as you're clear on all of those things, you're then able to outsource it and people can represent and support you in the way that is right for you. I've seen a lot of athletes get an agent who will offer to get or promise to get sponsorship for them and they do, but it's not necessarily a good fit. And that relationship with the athlete and the sponsor can be quite transactional. There are some great agents out there and there are some who are not necessarily thinking about what's best for the athlete on a personal level or on a sustainability level. They're just thinking about that transaction of getting the money. So yeah, I, I think that's probably the best way to say it. Athletes are busy. They are so busy. And if anyone, it really bugs me if people say that an athlete is lazy because I ain't lazy, just doing a lot of things and maybe didn't get to that, you know, a particular homework activity or a, a phone call because they're so busy and overloaded. So I think it's really important to recognize that an athlete who's busy already doesn't want to add to their timetable necessarily, but they can still put their brand into action. So it's not always about adding extra things. It's maybe streamlining things. You know, athletes are typically already doing social media, but by getting clear on their brand, they can maybe do it with breathing a little easier. They know that it's okay just to post about what they cooked for lunch or the fact that they're really excited about going traveling again, that that kind of content is really interesting. It doesn't always have to be about just about their sport and their performance. So it can actually, being clear on their brand can allow them to, like what we said before about outsourcing that, you could have people representing you, but also it can allow you to do what you already do with more clarity and less stress and more confidence and even more purpose. You know, if you know that you've got a particular message that's important to you, you can start carrying that in your conversations and your social media. And you can feel really good that, yeah, the, the brand, the elements that I'm putting out there are true for me. So while you're actually being guided by your brand, you're also then nurturing it and growing and developing all those elements. You're not ignoring them. And a lot of athletes will put things on hold until after their sport. They won't pursue a career or they may not develop skills or interests or passions that they have because they're so focused on their sport. But if they're able to integrate that into what they're already doing, it's going to make that journey in sport more enjoyable and sustainable and that transition out of sport a lot smoother. You know, they're, they're rocking the different parts of their life and so that when sport finishes, which often happens when they're least expecting it, they've got other things to go on with. They have they are a whole person. They're not just an athlete. Their identity and their self-worth isn't just tied up with being an athlete. I went off on a tangent then, but that's generally how this goes because it's so holistic. And we like tangents. And we love, I was <laughs> going to say, we love tangents. And we also wanted to talk about the what happens after because we've been talking a lot about athletes not competing this year and sort of like, okay, now who am I and what do I do? Yeah. So figuring out the brand, sort of getting in touch with who they are and what they want makes sense for that post-career trans that post-athletic career transition. Absolutely. We say that athlete brand can help athletes navigate and succeed in life in sport and beyond sport. So whether that's in parallel with their time in sport or whether it's after 
you know, finish competing at that high level. It's so important. I mean, I, I just did a webinar this morning with athletic directors and advisors and support staff of athletes from all around the world. And I shared a story that I don't, I don't share that often because I feel uncomfortable talking about it because I don't, I don't have an answer for it and, and it happened. It's an athlete who took his own life because when he finished sport, he was lost. He had no idea who he was. He was depressed. He felt like he'd lost everything, all of his ambitions, his friendship, his everything. Like everything in his life was tied up with sport, with running, and he couldn't do it anymore. He was, he was injured and he took his own life. Now, I know that there must have been other stuff going on as well, but that was what he, you know, his friends were told that you know, he, he'd said to them, I just don't see what the point is anymore. Now, at the other end of the extreme, there's those athletes who in and out of sport and when they finish sport, they flourish. They've got lots of other things going on in their life. They're successful. They're happy. And, and that can look different for every athlete. You know, one athlete's measure of success is money in the bank. The other is that warm feeling in their heart. So success is whatever they want it to be, but it's happiness and they're fulfilled and they're doing what they want um, in the way that they want to. So from those two extremes, when an athlete is able to, you know, put their brand into action in different aspects of their life, in their personal life, in their career, in their education, it's going to help them incrementally move away from that very dark place and into a more positive space because their whole identity and purpose and, you know, even their, their schedule is not just tied to their sport. And I think, you know, institutionalizing athletes was a thing that I think has sort of started to be, <laughs> they've, they've changed over the last 10, 20 years. They've recognized that athletes can't just do their sport. There needs to be more going on in their lives in terms of well-being and personal development and professional development. And so this is, this is really part of that, that we know that an athlete can't just do their sport and be happy and successful in and out of sport. You know, if, if they've got other things that are happening in their lives that are fulfilling them, it can actually have a positive influence on their sport, on their performance, on their mindset. So it really balances everything out. Um, I, I, I'm not saying that we can stop people from ending their lives. God, I hope so. I'd love that. Wouldn't that be the best thing? But what I know we can do is help people move that little step in the right direction, in a positive direction that's going to help them feel confident. It's going to help them like themselves more. It's going to help them see that they've got incredible value to offer, offer the world. Even if they're that person that always comes last and barely made the team, there's a story. There's some, you know, resilience right there. So, yeah, I, I think that's probably the one of the most important things is giving athletes that ability to navigate their path and to be more than an athlete so that while they're doing their sport, it sustains them, but it also helps with that transition. Because I don't know about you guys, but I hear that I hear that a lot that athletes do struggle, and it's not just because they have an existing mental, you know, diagnosed mental illness. It's it's the actual lack of I don't know maybe adrenaline and excitement and peaks and troughs and all that stuff that goes with sport. They lose that. Mm. It's tough. It's tough. Thank you so much, Vicky. This has been great, and we are really excited that uh, we could learn more about this topic. It's been 
really interesting. Like Allison said earlier, it's been a really interesting year, and and you start thinking about what happens next, and and how athletes can harness what they have when they don't have sports. So this has been really fascinating to learn about. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Vicki. You can find Vicki at thebrandbuilders.com.au. On Instagram and Facebook, they are We Are The Brand Builders. And Vicki is also on LinkedIn at Vicki Saunders. And Vicki is spelled V-I-C-K-I-E-S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S. We will have links to all of those in the show notes. This got me thinking. I did. And I'm sure it it came through that I am concerned about focusing too much on brand versus person though the way she describes it it's very much they shouldn't be separate it shouldn't be an image you're projecting it's projecting who you are and really getting in touch with yourself and right. what you want to put out there right which was interesting because when we when i think of a brand i think of something that is going to be sold and she talked about very much of get to know who you are and be comfortable in your skin and use what you have to promote what you believe in and what you do. So in, in a sense, that is branding. But when, I, I don't know, I just I have a really hard time taking the commercial side off of it, even though branding doesn't have to be commercial, which I thought was really interesting take on it. Right. It's deciding how you want, how you want to put yourself out in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think branding is an unfortunate holdover from corporate speak. Yeah, I wonder if somebody will come up with a new way to describe it. So what do you think our brand is? <laughs> That's a good question. I was thinking about this, and I, because she's in Australia, we did this pretty late in the evening. So I'm laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, wishing I had my Oreo cookies, and thinking about what our brand is. And all I kept thinking was, we are just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a fantastic brand. Like, we just are who we are. And we love the Olympics and we love everything about it. And we get excited about it. And we want everybody else to get excited about it, too. So I think that's an excellent brand. There we go. Ridiculousness. I can, I can buy into that. There you go. Get people excited. All right. See more of our brand when we get that branding material done. <laughs> it's on the list. You know what else is on the list? What? Making a headdress. Oh, because let's go check out what is up with our team. Welcome to Shuklastan. Don Harper Nelson, husband Alonzo, and baby Harper have a new YouTube channel called The Real Nelsons, and they'll be posting videos of their life and training and everything exciting about their family every week. More baby Harper. I know. I know. <laughs> that child is so cute. Our bobsledder Lauren Gibbs is starting another year of Classroom Champions, which, where she mentors students as part of the Classroom Champions program. She also had some surgery this week. Oh, she did? So, yes. She had her tonsils removed. Oh, my. Oh, my. So speedy recovery, Lauren, and, and enjoy all the ice cream. Right. 
And then uh, Shiva Keshavan was interviewed for the Times of India about the Arjuna Award that he won and his hope to make more winter sports more popular in India. We'll have a link to that read in the show notes as well. Let's move on to some Tokyo 2020 news. So organizing committee chief Toshiro Mudo announced an agreement on 50 to 60 items aimed at simplifying the games and reducing cost. So inside the games reported that they have not announced what the cost reductions will actually be, but they are making progress on that whole idea of simplifying the games uh, given the cost estimates which is related to item number two, because the University of Oxford published a study that estimated the cost of Tokyo 2020 to be 15.84 billion U.S. dollars. Reuters reported that the last estimate issued by the organizing committee in December 2019, which have been uh, before the pandemic, was 12.6 billion. So that's a, that's a lot of missing dollars there. There's a big Twitter storm around this report where it's the usual suspects saying that the games are too expensive. There's huge cost overruns. It's costing governments way too much money. And then on the other side of where are you getting your numbers? Oh, you're throwing in all these extra projects that aren't really the game's responsibility. So it's a back and forth. I haven't read the report either. So... I'm kind of curious about it, but I also kind of feel like it's the same old thing that gets rehashed every time you have a games is that they cost so much money. And I kind of want to give Tokyo uh, an exemption from this because they've had to deal with an extraordinary circumstance that has never happened before. Right. The Reuters article talked about the numbers from the University of Oxford took into account all the previous spending and the estimated spending going forward that was determined prior to the pandemic and then all the additional costs. But then you have the organizing committee saying, oh, no, no, the costs that we published before the pandemic going forward, obviously what's spent is spent, are not going to be what they were because we're doing these cost reductions. Mm. So it feels like Oxford took the highest number of every possible area that they could Ah, and added that all together. Okay. But is that valid? Yes, because that's what's published. Mm -hmm. But Tokyo is saying, no, we're not going to spend what we said we were going to spend because we're making these changes because we've had to spend in other places. So this is definitely going to be one of those situations where we are not going to know until after. And like you said, they're doing upgrades to public transportation and additional roads. And is that for the Olympics? Maybe. Or do you, you know, like when you do your tax return, how much of your house is a home office? What percentage are you putting in? So it's one of those things where, you know, there are three kinds of lies, <laughs> lies, damn lies and statistics. Whatever argument you want to make, you're going to be able to find the numbers to support it in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm going to be curious to see what is said about LA 2028 because one of the stadiums that's going to be used for LA 2028 is SoFi Stadium, which just opened. Games aren't for eight years. Are economists going to put the costs for building that stadium onto LA 2028 numbers, even though the stadium is going to be used for eight years ahead of time for the football team? Right. And it's 
not going to make the income it was projected to make, at least for 2020 and 2021, because if they were using it for additional events, you know, there's no fans coming to football games. And I'm sure there's no concerts that would have been in that stadium and there are no uh, soccer games that would be in that stadium. So then is it going to then even more so get pushed onto the Olympics when clearly that stadium was going to get opened mm-hmm. with exactly. or without the Olympics? I right. mean, if it's opening now, you can't design and build and plan and since the games were awarded. Right. The LA Games were awarded. It's, it's like... They have, we all know the Olympics is too expensive. We know that. Let's, let's yes. start with that premise. And rather than argue how expensive, I think it would make a lot more sense to put the effort into how can we make them less expensive. Mm-hmm. They cost too much. And countries that can't afford it are spending too much, and cities that can't afford it are spending too much money on them. Right. And they How keep, do we fix that? Right. And they keep getting bigger and bigger. And in in one sense... The IOC, I could see, would argue, well, we've put a cap on athletes. We've put a cap on the sports. But then there's this allowance for, well, you can have some sports of your own choosing host city. And so what did Tokyo do? They chose five sports. And five expensive sports. Right. That take venues that... I mean, baseball is an expensive sport because you've got a lot of athletes. Mm Mm-hmm. You need multiple venues going at the same time right. to get through the round robin of the baseball. That I mean, yes, those stadiums, if they're allowed to be full, would be filled. Right. And and Tokyo did have existing stadiums for that. But you still have to brand them and have people assigned to them and, and all of the things that you need to do to make a stadium ready for games. So this goes back to something that Thomas Bach was talking about in terms of moving toward more urban style sports. Mm-hmm. You know, breaking is cheap. Breaking is cheap. Skateboard park, not. You have to build the park. Yes, but you're not going to. I doubt you'd have a skateboard park white elephant. I hope. Yeah, that that's a good point. I think it's time to go to Beijing. Beijing has launched the I'm Possible educational campaign to teach Chinese school children about the Paralympics. So this is a nice little educational program that will uh, teach Paralympic history and values and share information about people with disabilities through Paralympic sport. So the program is paired with 627 schools and then another 1,036 schools that have winter sports programs in the country. I always like it when they do those educational campaign things. I always wished I was in a school that did them, but, you know, at least they're trying. I mean, especially for the Paralympics. I wonder how disability is viewed in China. That's a good question. If the Paralympics can have that same effect that it's had. We've talked about it in Japan. We've talked about it in the UK with London. We even talked about it a little bit in South America with Rio, Mm -hmm. that cultures have shifted because of the Paralympics. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the effect that this this games has, and and as the Paralympic movement keeps growing and gaining more visibility, how that will help change how we see uh, disabled people. And we've got something else in Paralympic news about that too. But Beijing twenty twenty two has also updated the Paralympics logo. 
when you look at them side by side, they don't look much different. Like the colors are a little bit brighter. And I guess uh, uh, the IPC updated its logo last year. So they put that on and it's, and it's just there's it's, it's a little bit more modern, but it's the same kind of look to it. But the big difference is that Beijing 2022 took the words Paralympic Games off of the logo. Why? Because we should be able to know by looking at the symbol that it's a Paralympic Games. You don't need to point that out. Right. The idea that when you see the five rings, you know it's the Olympics. Exactly. So the the logo of the Paralympics is called the Agitos, and it, it's those three, it's a red, blue, and green kind of swashes, I guess you would say, or swooshes in a sense. And I think they're they're trying to brand that in the same way as the five rings so that when you see the Agitos, you know that this is the Paralympic Games. We don't need to reiterate that. Right. And they've also created, it looks like a little more space between the swishes. And they describe it as, as making it not just more vibrant, but more vital. And hmm. I think that's really interesting because a few years ago here in the United States, they changed the handicap symbol. Oh. From you know, for parking yes. or for road signs from a, a person sitting statically in a wheelchair to something that looked like the person was pushing the wheels. Right. They're leaning forward. I remember They're that leaning now. forward and, and they have arms mm -hmm. in, in the new symbol. And the idea was to make the handicap symbol more reflective of how people with a handicap actually live. They don't just sit there. They're not in the heavy two-ton wheelchairs like we talked about when we were first talking about wheelchair basketball. So I see where they're going with this because symbolism matters. We've talked about that a million times. It does, and I, I really like the fact that we're getting to know that symbol and we don't need to say, oh, this is the Paralympic Games now. You just know, and I think right. that's a big step forward. Uh, in other Paralympic news, the International Paralympic Committee and the International Disability Alliance have signed a cooperation agreement to advance the rights of persons with disabilities, and then they jointly commit to use Parasport as a vehicle to drive the human rights agenda forward, which I think is really cool that they're partnering to create a bigger platform so that people with disabilities can get more rights, because in so much of the world, as we've seen, that there's a huge struggle for people with disabilities to have some basic human rights. And even, I, I'm not going to say the U.S. is perfect because it took us until 1992 to pass laws that require buildings and parking to be more equitable for people with disabilities. But there's still a lot of discrimination that happens. Absolutely. And as we've seen with the book we read on wheelchair basketball and when we talked about the Netflix show Rising Phoenix, sport has a way of reaching people in a way that nothing else does. Yes. You've got heroes built in. You've got these Paralympians who have medals and who have such dynamism in their activity and in their personalities that it's a fantastic alliance uh, to, to make that work. Yes. So looking forward to seeing what comes out of it. In other Olympic news, in other National Olympic Committee news, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee has created a board registry. And this is just a website where 
basically anybody could sign up to signify their interest in serving on a board for a national governing body or for the USOPC because they're always looking for independent board members. I think Phil Andrews has mentioned on uh, either Twitter or LinkedIn that uh, weightlifting is looking for an independent board member. But this is a place where you could sign up and you create an account. And I don't know what goes on from there because it's not something that we can do since we're media. But you could potentially serve on a governing body as a board member or a committee member. And they desperately need help. I know that a lot of them look for volunteers and having somebody who's maybe outside of sport could be helpful for them. It would not be helpful to have me on the board. <laughs> there would be so much yelling at people and asking them why they're being dumb <laughs> and threats of a wooden spoon. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. And if you do uh, sign up for this, let us know what your experience is. And if you do get paired, let us know, because I know there's some people in the group, in our Facebook group, who I think would be great board members because they're pretty involved in sport or they're very involved in understanding the Olympics. And I think that would be a good place for them to volunteer some time. And finally, Dick Pound's gone rogue again. (sighs) Okay, so the Daily Mail in the UK has reported that uh, Dick Pound rejects the idea of allowing podium protests with regards to Rule 50, uh, suggesting he suggested taking a knee would be, quote, inarticulate. You know who's inarticulate in this article? Uh, Who? Dick Pound. (laughs) Because, you know, I hate this phrase, but this was an absolute OK Boomer moment. He sounds so out of touch with the rest of humanity on this one. Because one of the things he said was, I think his point is valid. His point was, this is the Olympics. The podium is not a place for you to make your statement. You can make your statement in the press conference. You are free to say whatever you want there. You are being unfair to the other athletes on the podium. And this is kind of a sacred moment in receiving your medals and it should be treated as such. But the way he expressed it, where he said things like, oh, if you're getting your medal and the other two athletes are rolling around, that's not fair. And then he also said that if someone is up there kneeling as a viewer, you don't know if they're protesting racial injustice or fluoride in the water. Oh, that's interesting. The idea, And that was his point about inarticulate, the idea that somebody kneeling, you don't know what they're protesting. Ugh. And like I said, his point is absolutely valid because he also said, you know, you don't scream about human rights at somebody's funeral or in church, which is not exactly true, (laughs) as we've seen from various protests at funerals and church services. His point being, this is a, the, the medal ceremony in the podium is kind of a sacred place. And we don't want all these outside things to happen during that moment. But comparing protesting racial injustice to protesting fluoride in the water was just such an out-of-touch thing to say. And this is where the IOC gets themselves in so much trouble. It's not that they want to keep podium protests out, and their reasoning in this is a sacred 
moment. This is not the time for that. It's that they say, these guys say stupid things like that. And it doesn't help that he is an older white male. So he sounds even more out of touch with the young people, as Chomas Bach would say. So it just, usually I enjoy when Dick Pound and John Coates go rogue, but this just, just sounded like, oh, so cringeworthy. Yeah. Like what the kids are saying. Yeah. And it, it is interesting. The, the fluoride in the water bit is from Yahoo Sport UK did a better job reporting because the, the Daily Mail is pretty, pretty short, but the, the, we'll have a link to the Yahoo Sport article where he talks about not knowing what the protest is for, which is kind of an interesting point. But, but again, like, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's going to be an interesting result of what you get because also, I don't think we mentioned this on the show, but uh, Casey Wasserman, who is the head of LA 28, sent an open letter to the IOC saying, hey, allow protests, which is kind of a host going rogue. And in a way that's interesting that a, a host city wants to change how protests are viewed but they're also going up against the old guard of the IOC and of course it's LA yeah and it's LA and it's a it was a very american centric view where we want protests but is every protest going to be social justice i'm not sure they've that he took off the blinders and really realized let one protest in you let them all in right which we've talked about i really would like to get more international feedback on this. Mm -hmm. I would really like to hear what European and African and Asian, not just their IOC officials, but people in general feel about the protests. I mean, we're certainly split here in America about how these are received. I would like to hear what people around the world think of these. You know, do they think of this is just Americans being crybabies and whining and carrying on? Mm -hmm. which I'm a little concerned is what's happening, or if they want to be able to do this or recognize the importance of it or where they stand. And I don't think we're getting enough of that, at least here in the United States. I'm not hearing what do the Japanese public think of this happening in Tokyo. Right. That's a good that's a good point. Well, we shall see what happens. Uh, It's always interesting when the when the IOC members speak out because they don't always speak out. So thanks, Dick Pound, for going rogue. And on that note, I think we'll wrap it up for this episode. Let us know what you think our brand should be. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we'll be back with another Olympic interview and it's our third anniversary. So as we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Sometimes you think that life is just a journey
I think we're more like Mary Poppins. Yes. 